Welcome to the 24-hour conference on global organised crime podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime took place online in November 2020 and was organised by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Hundreds of academics, researchers, journalists and others from around the world gathered together to present and discuss the latest research in organised crime. We've selected just 14 of them for this podcast series. But I would encourage you to head over to the website oc24.globalinitiative.net where you can find recordings of other sessions. In this episode, you'll hear the session Urban Violence and Militarization in Brazil. Good evening, everyone, or good morning, good afternoon, depending where you're asking from. Thank you for joining us today at the 24-hour conference on organized crime to discuss urban violence and militarization in Brazil. My name is Flavia Capinari. I'm a violence prevention and social development specialist, and I'll be moderating our panel today. And our discussion is very timely. The most recent data from the Brazil Forum Public Safety shows that in 2019, we had almost 48,000 homicides in the country. While this represented a decrease of almost 18% when compared to 2018, police brutality has also increased substantially over the past two years. In 2019 alone, over 6,300 people were killed by police operations. This number represents 13% of the total number of homicides in the country. And this may go up in 2020. Just in the first six months of this year, law enforcement was responsible for almost 3,300 deaths, also 6% higher than what we had the first months of 2019. So much concern that police abuse would further increase during the pandemic that in early June, the Supreme Court prohibited police operations in favelas of Rio de Janeiro during COVID quarantine and lockdown measures. And despite that, just in October, the police killed 63 people in Rio, 425% increase when compared to the same month of last year. But police brutality is not something new in Brazil. Unfortunately, we have had thousands of stories like George Floyd, and several of them also caught on tape over the past several years. But why is this the case in Brazil? Why do we have so much urban violence, so much police violence? What is the government doing in that regard? And how is that impacting this trend? And what other policies do we have in the country to contain and prevent organized crime and urban violence? These are some of the questions that we'll discuss today with our distinct panel that I would like to introduce to you now. We have with us Melina Hiso, Research Director at the Garapé Institute. Vladimir Aras, Brazilian Federal Prosecutor. Artur Trindade, Professor at the University of Brazil and Advisor to Brazil Forum Public Safety. And Benjamin Lessing, Associate Professor and Director of the Latin American Studies at the Chicago University. And thank you all for being here with us today. We're going to have 10 minutes of presentation by each speaker, and after that, we'll have discussions. Please put your question in the chat box, and we'll be reviewing them throughout the conference. 
So to start and to explain the high levels of uh, police violence and urban violence, uh, we'll begin with Artur Trindade, who has a lot of experience in academia studying these this issues, but also a lot of experience in the public sector guiding and implementing public security policies. Artur, welcome. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, well, the control of police activity is not a exclusive problem of the Brazil or the new Latin American democracy. Over the past 50 years, countries like USA, Canada, France, Britain, uh, Germany, and Italy have been trying to submit their police forces to the rule of law. However, of course, some countries have been more successful than others. This is clear, not the case of Brazil. The question is why it's so difficult to control police violence? I will try to answer this difficult question addressing three uh, different aspects. The first of one is the cultural background. We cannot discuss police violence in Brazil, police brutality in Brazil, without talking about inequality and racism. Brazil is one of the most unequal, uh, has one of the most uh, unequal income uh, in the world. It's one of the most unequal countries in the, in the world. And you are, you were one of the, the least uh, countries to abolish the slavery. So this cultural background is uh, so important to think about questions about the police, the criminal justice system, and the way of the politics works in Brazil. The second aspect that I, I would like to, to talk about the police violence is the way that we think about our social control. And the third one is about the militarization and the opposite, the demilitarization of our, uh, of our police force in Brazil. About our uh, social control, today in Brazil, everyone seems to agree that the uh, public security is one of the main problems that affect the different aspects of our social, political, and economic life. Despite efforts to increase security spendings, presidents, governors, and mayors elected over the past three years have failed to provide the security demanded by the population. Violence, criminality, and fear increasingly present in the people's daily life make it even more difficult to build their citizenship. Civil rights, especially for the vulnerable groups, continue to be systematically disrespected. Situations of abuse and arbitrariness by the state's agents are still frequent. The economy has also been affected. According to the National Confederation of Industry, in 2015, security expenses represented over 5.5 of the GDP, Brazilian GDP. And the political field, the inability of the public authorities to respond 
to the demands for the security of the population and the accentuated disbelief in the politicians and their parts. In short, the new republic, our um, uh, political regime right now, seems to have failed in this issue. Some people attribute this failure to the excess of the individual guarantees existing in our legislation. For them, the police are bound by extremely permissive legislation with criminals. For other, other, however, attribute the problem to the resultants of the police to the suite, to suite the rule of law principle. Although they hold antagonist positions regarding the diagnosis, both views share the idea that the police are the main and sometimes the only institution charged with solving the problem. And when they put this problem in these terms, they forget that there is a wide variety of institutions, public and private, that have direct and indirect responsibility in controlling the conduct of individuals. The police play a central role in the way of the social control is carried out in Brazil. For many, it's more important. Police is more important than the schools, the market jobs, and the community in the task of controlling individuals. So, uh, changing the police is so difficult because it requires changing our uh, social control system. So, it's so difficult for just. The, 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 the third aspect that uh, I would like to talk about this is talk exchanging uh, uh, in some organizational aspect of the police. We are talking about demilitarization of our policy service. The main policy in Brazil is uh, a policy uh, that, is, uh, that is very similar to an armed branch. So to demilitar, demilitarize this policy requires to, to create a new identity, a new professional identity in this policy, in this policy officer, create a, a professional identity like a, a police, not a military. So it's so difficult because it's implied to abolish a certain kind of um, there kind of rights about pensions, about um, uh, incomes and retirement. So uh, there, is, there are a lot of, uh, um, uh, well, it's not so easy to convince the police officer, the hierarchies to change this situation. So, uh, we can talk about this uh, during the discussions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Arthur. You gave her a really, really great the challenge that we have ahead of us to change this, this scenario. Um, I would like to ask now Benjamin Latin to, to join us. Benjamin has a vast experience studying governance and organized groups, and who discussed also a little bit of the impacts of some policies some counterproductive 
policies that have been put in place in Brazil to fight organized crime. Benjamin, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit today about some of uh, some of my research into what I call counterproductive uh, counterproductive policies, counterproductive state repression, by which I mean attempts by states, in particular, I'll talk about Brazil today, but my research compares a lot of Latin American countries, attempts to, to get a hold of uh, organized crime or to reduce organized crime or in other ways to combat organized crime um, and the ways in which these, uh, these efforts can quite often not just fail to control organized crime, uh, but can in sometimes uh, actually you know, have backfire and have counterproductive effects. So I want to talk about two aspects uh, today uh, in, with, uh, with respect to uh, Brazil, but I want to emphasize that my research is comparative. I compare uh, multiple countries in multiple settings. And so, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, in certain, uh, th these aren't just findings relevant, relevant to Brazil only. I agree with a lot of what Arthur said about the unique characteristics of Brazil, the high levels of uh, inequality, the particular history, uh, you know, not just the length of time, uh, you know, historically that slavery was present in Brazil, but the intensity of slavery in Brazil is much higher than in, uh, in for example, in the United States in terms of just the sheer number of, of, of people forced to, uh, forced to migrate and so on and so forth. But at the same time, some of the dynamics uh, that we see in Brazil have echoes in other parts of the world. Um, so let me start by uh, mentioning uh, one one of these dynamics, uh, which I discuss in my uh, in my first book, which is called Making Peace in Drug Wars. This is a book about that asks the question: Why do we see organized drug trafficking organizations, dr uh, drug cartels, if you will, get involved in armed conflict with the state? Arthur mentioned the incredibly high number of police killings in Brazil, and it's true that across Brazil we see very high numbers of uh, police killings of civilians. But they're particularly high in Rio de Janeiro, uh, where there's been an ongoing, essentially armed, kind of armed conflict between uh, Comando Vermelho and other organized crime groups, but especially the Comando Vermelho and the state. And this, is a, this has been going on really since the mid-1980s. And really from the early 1990s on, the Brazilian state has countered or has tried to counter the power of these organizations with a, increasing levels of militarization of the police. So in this book, I try to grapple with the question, why do these crackdowns backfire? The state seems to crack down with ever uh, more intense militarized uh, repression and drug cartels just fight back more. And, uh, we saw, and we see very similar dynamics played out in Colombia during the, the Pablo Escobar period in the 1980s. The Colombian government cracked down very hard on the Medellin cartel and the Medellin cartel fought back with a decade worth of debilitating terrorist attacks. And we see the same in Mexico, right? We've seen now almost 20 years of, of cartel state conflict in Mexico that really began in the, in the mid 2000s with a militarized crackdown by the Mexican government, um, which today still uh, has embroiled the country in armed conflict. So just looking quickly at the case of Rio, you can just see this escalation playing out uh, in the, this is a data series of uh, our police killings of civilians, what are uh, generally, uh, they're called auto de resistencia, 
They're often uh, assumed to be armed resistance by civilians to police action. So they're technically self-defense killings by police civilians. Many of those killings are not actually self-defense on the part of police, but it gives us a rough measure of the intensity of the conflict between drug traffickers and the state. What we can see is that from the 90s onward, there's been a steady, steady uh, escalation of this war. And uh, that's despite the fact that the government has increasingly militarized its police force and increasingly expanded the, um, the degree of, of repressive force that has brought to bear on the drug, uh, the drug trafficking groups of Rio. Now, you see there's a big dip in this curve uh, from around 2008 to around 2013. Uh, the level of armed conflict between cartels and the state, if you will, uh, if we can call this that, uh, falls almost to the lowest levels uh, you know, not seen since the 90s. That corresponds to the pacification UPP program uh, period in Rio's history. Uh, and, and beyond that particular program in, a, in, a, in a, about 200 favelas, uh, a general approach on the part of the government aimed at minimizing violence. It was, an, it was a deliberate policy on the part of Rio's state government to focus on minimizing armed conflict, minimizing armed violence on the part of drug traffickers with de-emphasizing uh, the goal of destroying all drug trafficking. What happened. So that was a, a very important moment. Fortunately, that, uh, uh, that, um, that policy began to sort of erode in the mid to late, in around 2012, and uh, is, at this point has essentially been rolled back. I mean, there still exists technically sort of UPP policing units. Um, I see them around but they're not really practicing the kind of conditional approach, what I call a conditional policing approach, uh, that they were practicing in the heyday of this program from 2008 to 2013. What do I mean by conditional approach? It's when a government says, look, we're not trying to end the drug trade per se. What we're trying to do is uh, dissuade drug cartels from being violent. We're trying to dissuade organized crime groups from resorting to the most violent and disruptive activities. And when you fight a war of deterrence, you need to hold something in reserve. So rather than throwing everything they can at these, at these organizations and just trying to you know, kill as many drug traffickers as possible, the state would hold something in reserve as a way of punishing uh, drug trafficking organizations for being violent and in that way be able to deter the use of violence. And this was effective for a while, but it was very difficult to maintain politically because when you do this kind of conditional policy, very easy to get accused of turning a blind eye to drug trafficking. Um, my book, I talk about how similar policies worked for a little while in Colombia, but also fell prey to political considerations, and how attempts to, in, to, uh, to reform drug policy in this direction in Mexico during the Calderon presidency also failed. There was attempts to make Mexican drug policy look a little bit more like the UPP policy and focus on the most violent drug cartels. But those reform attempts from within government, from within the government's own security agents, uh, were attacked on a political basis precisely by figures like Garcia Luna, who now we know were actually uh, potentially involved uh, with the, with the uh, cartel, del Golfo, cartel de, de Sinaloa. Okay, so that's what I want to say about the armed conflict between drug traffickers and the state. Uh, 
I want to just very briefly touch on another set of policies that have also backfired, uh, and which is a subject of uh, my second book project, which I'm now working on. And this has to do with mass incarceration and the rise of prison-based criminal organizations or, or prison gangs, as they're sometimes called. In Brazil, we call them facções criminosas, Comando Vermelho, the PCC, and, and now a host of you know, dozens, if not hundreds of other criminal prison-based criminal factions or facções that have spread throughout Brazil. These groups start in prison, but eventually come to control crime on the streets. And the story of the PCC is extremely illustrative of the potential for backfire of hardline hard uh, policies. I just have a couple of minutes, so let me uh, tell you briefly about the PCC, and I'll wind up. So the PCC was born within uh, Sao Paulo prison in 1993, after uh, a massacre there led to the death of 111 inmates at the hands of military police who came charging into Caranduru prison to put down a riot. At, in the wake of that, prisoners kind of banded together and formed this sort of self, uh, in, a, in a sense, a self-protection group of some sort. That was the PCC. It was a very small group to begin with. Um, over the years, it grew and grew. And by 2001, it had dominated a large part of the prison system in Sao Paulo, which, if you look at this graph here, you can see it was expanding rapidly. So all through the 80s and 90s, the incarceration rate in Sao Paulo was growing. In fact, Sao Paulo was beginning a long-run uh, experiment with mass incarceration on a scale really only equaled by the United States. You know, Sao Paulo, if it was a country, would have an incarceration rate around the same level as California, if it was a country. Right? So these are very high incarceration rates, three, 400 people per 100,000. This did not weaken the PCC. On the contrary, the PCC grew stronger. And in 2001, it launched a coordinated rebellion in 23 prisons in Sao Paulo. The state then cracked down even harder. It put in place all kinds of solitary confinement uh, policies, also cracked down on the streets of Sao Paulo, claimed to have dismantled the PCC. In fact, the PCC had only grown stronger. And in 2006, it launched a second mega rebellion. And this time, it included coordinated waves of violence on the streets of Sao Paulo. Uh, that really kind of brought the city to a standstill uh, and forced the government to engage in some kind of negotiation with the leadership of the PCC. Still kind of unclear what really happened. But in the wake of this mega rebellion, a kind of peace settled down where the PCC and the state reached a kind of uh, detente. Meanwhile, incarceration rates throughout Brazil continued to rise. And a high incarceration, mass incarceration, ceased to be purely a Sao Paulo phenomenon. It really became a generalized phenomenon throughout all of Brazil. And not coincidentally, in, the, in these years since 2006, the PCC has expanded and established a presence throughout Brazil in every single state of the country with a very strong presence in certain key locations, including Ceará, Poraima, Acre, areas near the border or with, transship, uh, with shipping routes uh, to, to Europe where they can be involved in international drug trafficking. PCC now has upwards of 30,000 members, possibly closer to 36,000 members. It has presence in neighboring countries, and I think the most important point that I'll close with is that mass incarceration not only failed to contain the PCC, it is clearly a key element in the growth of the PCC. 
So this is just a quick overview of some of the ways that hardline repressive policies can backfire. Thanks very much. Thank you, Benjamin. And this was really insightful too, because as you all know, this is uh, very much the approach that we have been seeing, unfortunately, in Brazil for the past two years. So this, your research is more timely than ever. Um, thank you very much. We already have a lot of interesting questions coming up for both of you. Uh, now we'll move to our last speaker, Melina Fiso. Uh, and Melina has a lot of experience working with civil society and governments and from the academia as well. Um, a lot working on with local governments, also on the prevention side of violence that we haven't touched upon today yet. So Melina, it would be great to, to hear from you now. Thank you. Thank you, Flavia. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. And just to start, as Vladimir was saying, there is a really the, a complex and different causes for violence in Brazil. And I would, would like to start with this uh, number that I'm just uh, coming through with a project that I'm doing in a city in the northeast of Brazil, uh, in Caruaru where we are crossing different numbers to understand a little bit better what is happening with uh, violence. And it's really amazing when we saw and crossed the numbers and crossed the perspective, who is dying, who is the victims of homicides, and see if they were ex-inmates. The number that we reach there when we cross all these numbers is that only 8% of the victims of homicides in the city of Caruaru are ex-inmates. So it shows that the violence, the urban violence in Brazil, it's much more complex than just looking at the, uh, just looking at the based, prison-based organization, uh, crime groups, as Ben was explaining. And this is a really huge problem in Brazil, but I'd like to address some other uh, parts and some other programs that we should really focus when we are looking and understanding uh, urban violence in Brazil. Uh, maybe prevention policies are the missing part of a comprehensive approach to public security. And as we saw with uh, uh, Arthur's presentation, we are moving to a more militarized perspective in Brazil. Uh, but it's really important to see what cities are doing and what they can do. So first, when we see the first uh, consistent policy in terms of city participation in public security was the municipal guards. We can say that they are, um, they are a municipal police, uh, but with a restricted functions. And since the beginning of 2000, there has been a growing number of municipal guards uh, all over Brazil. Uh, according to EBG, in 2015, there were uh, 1,000 uh, guards in the country with more than 99 people working in this kind of forces. And of course, most of them were constituted as uniform police structure of a civilian character but they mirrored at uh, military police uh, organizations. And uh, most, of, most of the time they are led by professionals from these forces. And this has huge implications uh, in how they are dealing and what they are doing uh, in their day-to-day -day work. 
In recent years, we have seen some guards being repositioning themselves and assuming a propedorant role in application of administrative sanctions and also participating in overall urban control by using public safety impact studies to inform their activities in violence prevention program and as well as the school violence prevention programs. Um, the other good, um, the other good role that they are taking part in it is in the domestic violence cases, such as creating Maria da Pena patrols and schooling patrollings, and they can be preventing different kinds of violence that also happens in the city and then lead to little violence that we are seeing uh, in the cities. The other thing that we are looking when analyzing uh, what, what are the roles that cities are playing in safety and security policies are their strategic planning, uh, doing some planning and coordination and governance, working all together with police forces and also with Ministerio Publico and the justice system to solve some of the problems they are uh, they are doing uh, they are saying they are seeing uh, in the local level at the governance uh, perspective uh, what we see is that cities are working and improving their management offices integrating all these policies and they are having uh, really good uh, perspectives and resulting coordinating prevention actions, but also repression measures, uh, not taken only by the cities, but also with the other police forces. Um, another uh, really um, approach that cities are taken are the territorial, what we call the territorial approach where they based all their uh, policies and social policies and prevention policies in one territory. It was led and it was uh, driven by PRONASI. It was a federal um, a policy in the 2007 uh, by Lula's government. Uh, and this has also, this have also really huge impacts uh, until now, we are seeing these policies developing in the cities. It's really worth mentioning some new projects that is coming along with the cities uh, in Brazil, such as COMPAS, uh, uh, that are community peace centers at uh, Recife. Uh, these policies anchored in a specific public facility, and these centers are located in neighborhoods with really high levels of violence and offer different social violence prevention policies. The results that COMPAS are having reducing violence and providing a different uh, perspective of uh, prevention policies to the communities are really amazing. And this relates to what we are seeing that how the state should, um, should fight or should uh, provide different policies to reduce violence and not just uh, police forces in these uh, communities. Another one that is really, uh, that it's uh, worth mention, it's youth programs that are becoming much more target at youth, at people at high risk. For example, uh, the city of Canoas and Pelotas are doing one program that is called 
cada jovem conta, it's every youth counts, uh, that they are aimed to youth at the education system with low school attendance, learning difficulties, and who have, have parents imprisoned or with history of drug abuse. So with uh, this uh, really tailored uh, approach to each case, they are having really, uh, is really good results and reducing the risk factors that is affecting the whole community. And most of them uh, sometimes are driving uh, these youth to be part of the organized crimes. The good news uh, in terms of the city policies are targeted at women uh, and they are really improving uh, the uh, policies to reduce um, domestic violence. Until 2003, the main services available uh, in the cities were police stations and service specialized on women. But since the creation of the National Secretariat of Human's Policy by the federal government uh, and the approval of Maria da Penha law in 2006, many cities have set up their own secretariats and implemented really good policies for uh, combat, for prevent uh, human violence and set up networks and, pro and programs to address gender-based gender violence. Uh, according to the Ministry of Human, Family and Human Rights, Brazil has had in 2015 at least 239 cities with services dedicated to prevent human uh, violence against women. Uh, and one thing that we notice when uh, looking at these programs, it's uh, the role that federal government has in inducing this kind of policies in Brazil as a whole. Since the beginning of 2000s with the national, the first and the second national public security plans, uh, we saw the improvement and the, 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 the increase of the numbers of guards and municipal plans in different cities of Brazil. And also with Pronasi, uh, we saw different uh, territory approach and different programs such as women of peace and protected and the territories of peace. So uh, federal government has a really important role in inducing such policies. And besides the fund, they also provide capacity support and training that is really important since many cities do not have a strong capacity to formulate such policies. So when it comes to federal government is doing under Bolsonaro presidents, uh, we have to be really careful about what is going on in the country right now. The present obsession with firearms has a huge question when uh, we investigate how it's going to affect municipal guards, especially, especially in these uh, municipal elections that we have in next Sunday. Uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, proposals for the candidates, for mayors, to arm their guards. Uh, and this could be a really uh, problem when we look the increase of police violence in Brazil, especially when we don't have social controls put in place to control the violence of police and especially the guards that are more fragile than police forces. Uh, the other thing that is worth mentioning that 
Last year, federal government created a pilot program called Enfrente Brasil uh, that was implemented in five cities, and they have this perspective to work in the prevention side, but also in the repression side. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, it was just for five cities, and it's not uh, developing as well as they should be, and they haven't uh, been uh, learned from previous experience that as they had. And uh, so, to say, uh, so as we saw different programs and policy are being implemented by cities, but uh, a lot of things are still missing. What I would say it's uh, for the first part, it's a more comprehensive approach and understanding how violence prevention can work from a municipal level. Uh, when cities have uh, this approach, looking at the urban intervention as uh, also in the social uh, social policies that can implement, there is there has been a huge gap in how cities are seeing their role in the safety and security uh, perspective as their responsibility. But also I'd like to call the attention for one perspective that is the regulation uh, of land use, for example. As we've been seeing in Brazil, criminal organizations are expanding uh, their business to land use exploration, for example. And in this uh, regard, Municipal and cities, they have a huge role in doing this, regulating uh, the land use and how uh, everything can be set besides uh, the criminal justice system. So there is a regulatory power uh, in the city's uh, perspective, in the city's role that they have been, that they, they need to implement in order to uh, reduce uh, the the power of the organized criminal groups that are acting much more in the cities, at least in these frames that we are seeing uh, around uh, around Brazil and around different cities. So I let forward the question so we can still uh, discuss different perspectives. Thank you so much, Melina. And this was very, very useful. I guess by now you have all seen how complex the context that we're dealing with is, but we have also heard about lessons learned from policies that have not worked and some that are promising and some things that we should be doing. Um, so there's a lot of questions here. Um, I will start, there's a lot of interest on the PCC. So I will try Dr. Lessing to sort of add them together for you. Uh, sure. So first of all, there's a question on the expansion of the PCC inside and outside uh, Brazil. Uh, questions on to, to what extent it, uh, it has gotten to Europe or, or other areas. And if you think the PCC has transformed in a new generation of cartels. Uh, this question is from Carolina Sampo from Argentina. And just one more um, on the PCC. Uh, no, I think we can start with that one. People who study organized crime, uh, scholars of organized crime, as well as people who work, uh, you know, as Vladimir does, as in prosecuting organized crime, uh, get very deep into the question of sort of, you know, is this a mafia or what kind of mafia it is and trying to categorize different criminal groups. 
Um, and very, people get very invested in different categories. You know, is it a third generation gang or is it this kind of, and I don't want to, you know, disparage that work. It's important. Um, but I, 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 I'm personally, I'm not, I, I, I don't think it's the health, the, the most uh, fruitful way to approach um, a group like the PCC because it, it, it is in some ways a very unique organization. Um, and so it, it's in some ways very hard to characterize. Um, it also is a very large organization and it has sort of concentric circles of membership. So when we say that it has 36,000 members, uh, that's an estimate of how many people are baptized at, into the PCC. But does that really mean that it's sort of like a top-down army of 36,000 criminal employees who are all following strict orders? Um, you know, probably not. Probably some of those people are sort of autonomous and have linkages to the group, but, you know, uh, maybe aren't necessarily following orders all the time. Um, and when we think about it as an expanding organization with its fingers and, you know, in different countries and moving into Europe, moving into neighboring countries around Brazil, what do we mean by that? Well, I mean, again, I think, you know, you, if, uh, you, 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 to get a full picture, you want to talk to prosecutors, you want to talk to journalists, you want to talk to people on the ground. Uh, but my sense of things is to think of the PCC again as kind of concentric circles. Its center of power, its center of, uh, of gravity is the prison system. And in particular, it's the prison system of São Paulo, which, as I said, is a very large prison system. I think on the order of uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of prisoners uh, and, 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 you know, over a hundred prison units spread throughout the state, the vast majority of which are dominated by the PCC. So where is it most powerful? It's most powerful within the Sao Paulo prison system, but it also has a strong presence in prison systems throughout Brazil. Now, when we see that the PCC is operating in Paraguay or, or, or Bolivia, what does that mean? It means that there's members, sworn members, brothers of the PCC who have drug operations there or have criminal operations there. It means they've probably made inroads in terms of corruption, as, as, uh, as Vladimir mentioned, right? It means they have, they have police that they can bribe, customs officials they can bribe. It means they may have, uh, you know, uh, taken the place of local, you know, they may have pushed out or co-opted local criminal groups, in some cases murdering uh, sort of, you know, old school, pre, uh, you know, local strongmen get, get pushed out by the PCC. At the same time, it's not like the PCC has the kind of thoroughgoing, almost cultural power that it has in Sao Paulo. So in my research going around to different states of Brazil, I found when you go to places like uh, Fortaleza or Rio Grande do Norte or Amazonas or Santa Catarina in the south, places where the PCC has a presence, but it's not the kind of dominant hegemonic presence that it has in Sao Paulo. About its presence in Europe, my sense of things is that that's much more commercial, right? It's a little bit like the way the Mexican cartels may have a presence in Colombia in the sense that they go to Colombia and buy the drugs in Colombia, but it doesn't mean that the Mexican cartels have territorial control in Colombia the way they maybe do in Mexico. Similarly, the PCC may have some commercial interests in Europe or even in Africa, but they don't have that kind of thoroughgoing social control that they have in Brazil and in particular in Sao Paulo that comes from, you know, thoroughly dominating a prison system in a place where the incarceration rate is so high that people on the street are constantly shuffling through the prison system and being socialized into the system where the PCC is so dominant.
And I would just finally say that structure of, a, of, a, of an organization whose power base is within prison is very, I don't want to say it's unique to Brazil, but it's a unique structure. So again, you know, when you think about categorizing different types of groups, many traditional mafias and even drug cartels aren't really prison-based in the same way. They may have the ability to run their businesses from prison, but they're not drawing their source of power from the prison masses the way that Brazil's criminal organizations like the Comando Vermelho and PCC, uh, the way that they draw their power from the prison masses. Thank you so much. And actually, we did have two other questions that I think you just answered from Camila Braga. She had actually asked if there was any, any, any organization of this type in Latin America or elsewhere. And I think you just answered that. And also Thiago Uli had asked uh, if PCC had also control over territories outside of prison, which I think you also explained. Just in case you wanted to add something. Uh, but just to briefly say that this technique of controlling you know, urban peripheries by a kind of prison gang of one form or another, of, that it started in Rio with the Comando Vermelho in the 80s and 90s. The PCC then kind of copied the Comando Vermelho and then in their own way sort of evolved and became in some ways even more effective. But it's also a phenomenon that we see in El Salvador and other Central American countries with the Maras, right? These are prison-based organizations that have incorporated street gangs into a prison-based structure and they dominate urban peripheries, you know, low-income neighborhoods throughout Central America. And it's even something that we see in the U.S., although to a much uh, less, uh, you know, a smaller degree or a less intense degree. But, you know, Los Angeles, uh, where the where the Mata Salvatrucha began, uh, is a place where Latino gangs were controlled by prison-based gangs, the Mexican mafia, you know, sort of learned to core organize street gangs and control urban territory um, uh, from prison. And again, that's California. It's a place with a very high incarceration rate. So it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that in, in many places with high incarceration rates, even the U.S., this phenomenon of prison-based control uh, can be observed. And Thank if you so I may much. add something to what Ben is saying, uh, we have to understand that, especially in Brazil or in Sao Paulo where PCC is, or sometimes uh, where some organized groups in Rio, uh, they provide some of the policies that they state, uh, the lack of the state, uh, it strengthened their presence in these communities. So we have to think it's, of course, like the prison and the mass incarceration strengthened these groups, but also the lack uh, of the presence of the state in these uh, peripheries that also has played a role really important uh, in where they expand their power through their communities. Thank you, Melina. That's, so that's really important because as, as we know in Sao Paulo, the way the PCC helps to control, they also control over the families of inmates, right? By providing assistance, like Melina was saying, assistance that the state is not providing. So they feel that um, lack of state presence. Uh, one question that we have here for, for Ben, I think Artur, maybe if you wanna, uh, if you wanna answer this too, is Alejandra Quesada. It says, according to the latest book of Dr. Trejo Erle, uh, these problems arise to, due to the gray zone. Okay. How is it possible to transition to a conditional approach with a corrupted police? Arthur, do you want to start or do you want me to? 
let me just, I'll say something quickly and then I'll pass off to Arthur. Okay. So one of the things that, you know, I write about in, in, in my book and that I argue in terms of conditional repression is there's a, there's a misconception about the, the, the place that corruption plays. We often think that uh, uh, corruption is an alternative to sort of getting serious about crime. So we think these crackdowns are often portrayed as simultaneously cracking down on crime itself and also cracking down on corruption. And we saw this a lot in Mexico, right? So you saw this notion that the PAN under Calderon is going to finally get serious with the drug traffickers, uh, whereas the PRI had always had these corrupt deals. Um, and so they launched this very militarized crackdown. But in reality, when you launch these militarized crackdowns in a non-conditional way, when you say we're going after all the traffickers equally, we're going to destroy the cartels, we're going to lock everybody up, uh, and, and you're not focused specifically on minimizing violence, right? You don't have a kind of clear mission where you're saying, look, our goal here is to make this, uh, uh, to make the drug trade less violent. Uh, and you just say, you know, we're going to come and kill all the drug traffickers or arrest all the drug traffickers or crush the cartels. Um, it not only gives the cartels an incentive to fight back, as we've seen in Rio, but it also gives them, uh, it also gives corrupt police more uh, extortionary power over the cartel. If you hand police power of life or death over drug traffickers, so they're able to just go in with military weapons and, and kill as many drug traffickers as they want, you know, with impunity, it also gives them the power to not kill the drug traffickers in exchange for bribes. And even if the, even if the police aren't particularly corrupt, right, even if they would like to be honest, the fact is they're going up against cartels with millions and millions of dollars who would gladly pay you know, millionaire bribes to avoid being shot and killed or, or dragged off to prison. And so even non-corrupt police forces can become corrupt when they're thrown into this kind of war. Now, that doesn't, in my view, whether, you know, that's a separate question from whether you're doing conditional repression. When you send in police and you say, look, the job of the police here is not to end the drug trade or seize as much drugs as possible. The job of the police is to deter organized crime from engaging in the most disruptive forms of violence. Then the ability to extract bribes in exchange for not, you know, for, 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 for uh, not, you know, not doing millionaire drug busts uh, is reduced. And so I think the issue of, I'm not saying that the issue of corruption is an easy one to solve. But I think the idea that you're going to solve both corruption and drug trafficking with one single policy is very misguided. And often you end up in a situation, I think, with what we see in Mexico now, where you didn't, you know, violence got worse. You didn't end the drug trade by any means. You still have a huge drug flows going through Mexico. And frankly, corruption isn't much better than it ever was. As I said, you've now, we now know that Garcia Luna the whole time was probably in cahoots with El Chapo. So not only did they not reduce the drug trade itself, not only did violence get worse, but it's not clear that corruption even got any better. So I think, the goal, I think the goal, again, of conditional repression is to focus on one of those problems, the most tractable in my view, which is uh, you know, the most extreme form and disruptive forms of violence and try to focus on minimizing that and maybe you know, taking the other things a little bit slower and not, and not making them the overarching goal of drug policy. Well, I, I, I'm totally agree with Ben. Uh, Melina told us an example in a small city in the north, northeast part of Brazil, 
uh, that's important. Uh, the most part of the um, police violence and the police uh, uh, deaths is not against the the, uh, the gangs, the PCC members or, or the factions. It's against the, 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 the young black people in the, the neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods. That's different. And I think, yes, uh, we are talking about two different problems. And of course, this problem, there are some connections, there are some links, but there are two different problems. The problem of the police, uh, the police background, uh, the, the militarization, the way of the police do their job, uh, uh, the lack of control, the police, the way that police relate, uh, uh, deal with the, the, uh, the, the young people in the, the neighborhoods, uh, in the peripheries, is a problem. And now we are we got a other problems. Uh, the PCC, the factions, the the, the, the organized crimes, uh, the borders, the international uh, crime. So uh, there are two problems. There are other problems also in Brazil connected to the criminality, gangs problems. Uh, uh, these problems are connect. Of course, they are connected. Of course, there, 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 there is some connections. There are some connections among these problems. And where there are these connections? These connections are in the culture. These connections are in the state. Uh, the way that the state uh, deal with the crime, the way of the state, the criminal justice work, the way that the, 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 our society think about the police and the way of the police think about their job. But there are different problems. There's connections, but we are talking about different things. I totally agree with Ben and Melina that we are talking about different problems. Thank you very much for a great panelist uh, for joining us today. And thank you all for watching. And this was a very, very interesting discussion, lots of challenges and lessons learned. Um, and thank you so much. You are listening to Urban Violence and Militarization in Brazil. If you'd like to get more information on this topic and the speakers, head over to the conference website, oc24.globalinitiative.net. There you can also find videos of most of the talks, including a number of discussions that are not part of this podcast series. This was the 24-hour conference on Global Organized Crime podcast. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>